0: Hi there and welcome back to the Energy Sector Heroes podcast. My name is Michelle Fraser and every week I will speak with incredible people who share their lessons, experiences and stories from their time spent in the energy sector. Hi there and welcome back again to this week's episode. If you're new to the show, then please take a second to subscribe and even consider sharing the show with just one other person. This week, I am joined by Davis Larson. Davis is an incredible CEO of ProServe, which I'm actually quite excited about. I've been after you for an interview for a while now. Davis, would you like to introduce yourself, please?
1: Yes, thank you, Michelle. So, Davis Larson, I'm the CEO for ProServe, based here in Aberdeen. Been with ProServe for 13 years in um, various roles in the organization. And I'm um, glad to be here with you today, Michelle.
0: Well, thank you. So, how did you get started off in the energy sector?
1: Oh, probably about 25 years ago. I joined Slumberger as a business analyst. So, on the financial side, actually here in Aberdeen. And that was my first entry into the energy sector. And I remember at the time the the headhunter who put me in the role saying, "If you last more than two years with Sumbergier, you'll get a job pretty much anywhere else because you 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 learn a lot, but they they drive you hard." And the person was right, and it was a it was a great experience and a great a great grounding for me. Um, being at Sumbergier, they very much threw me at new challenges sometimes before I thought I was ready. So you often think you're in a sink or swim situation, but you weren't really because there was a strong network around you. But it was about testing you in different environments, different technical environments, different cultural environments, uh, geographical locations. And I was lucky enough early on in my career with Sungevity to, you'll be based here in Aberdeen, across in Houston, in London, and the Middle East as well. So you know a great early start into the energy industry. So yeah, that's how I came into this space.
0: So how did you handle that at, an early, at quite a young age when you were put into different situations to maybe see, to see how you would perform? That's quite stressful for even a young person to, to do that, even for someone who's maybe not so, well, somebody who's going to be more experienced as well. But for a young person, it's going to be quite hard to do.
1: It depends on your definition of young, Michelle. I, I, looking back, I still feel I'm young now. Never mind then, but um, I think it. I think it's less of an age thing. It really comes down to, I guess, character, personality, and and are you the kind of person that thrives on the challenge, or are you the kind of person that wants to come into work every day and kind of just do the same thing? And you know, one way is not right or wrong. It depends on what you are inclined to do, what your personality is, is built around. So sometimes you find some of the challenges maybe a bit maybe a bit intimidating. You maybe got a degree of anxiousness about it. So you've got to push yourself into your uncomfortable zone sometimes. And I guess everybody makes their own choices in terms of how comfortable or uncomfortable are they you know, around that. And I guess looking back, some challenges were bigger than others. Um but I think you go into them with your eyes wide open and think, well, if I hit a brick wall here or I'm stuck. Who can I turn around and and ask for help? And that might be your boss. It might be another colleague. It might be a mentor. And every challenge was, was different. You know, there's probably two or three stand out to me as I reflect on it. You know, one was when I was sent to the Middle East. And the reason one of the reasons that I was put into the leadership team in that particular role was to create a bit of diversity in that team because everybody else was from that region. And obviously, I went in. I'd holidayed in that region before and been on business visits, but had never lived and worked in that region, didn't read or write or speak Arabic. So that was a big cultural challenge for me. And I think you've got to you've got to win people over and um, by establishing a basis of trust somewhere. And then from that common grounding of trust, you know, you can start working together. And so if now you've asked me the question, I reflect back on it. A lot of it is probably making connections with people and trying to win people over. So they recognize what you bring to the party, you recognize what they bring to the party, and kind of you're removing those potential barriers that can stop people and the teams being effective together. And so subconsciously, some of you have probably really helped me learn and develop a lot of those skills without me realizing that's what I was doing at the time.
0: How did you actually go about doing that to to overcome to overcome these challenges then?
1: It's gonna sound a bit glib perhaps, but you you just kind of get on with it uh, you know each each challenge is different and whether it be for example one time as I was I was challenged to go and negotiate a deal to acquire a company and I'd never done that before but you know I pulled a team together of people to come with me who were kind of subject matter experts on you know HR on QHSE on manufacturing operations and so on and we worked on it as a as a team so okay in that particular role I I led the team but I was probably playing the role of project manager, you know, coordinator, setting the drumbeat, making sure the work was getting done, and leverage the subject matter experts to actually you know, do the job themselves. And that's that's probably how I went about a lot of it, as well as probably spending a lot of time getting to know people, listening to people, and trying to understand what makes people tick, you know, what drives their personality? Are they an introvert? Are they an extrovert? How do they react in certain situations? And again, another another example, I think, of my early days with Schlumberger was pulling financial information every month from 28 G markets, as Schlumberger used to call it. And I had no formal authority over those 28 G markets. So, so I had to encourage them, One of a better word, to provide me with very detailed financial information every month for me to consolidate. So I had to encourage and cajole them so that they wanted to give it to me because I had I couldn't just tell them to give it to me. So you're probably inadvertently creating a lot of soft skills that help you work more effectively with people by influencing people and, and winning people over. And so that's that's how I went about a lot of them. So getting to know people, building bridges and trust, And surrounding yourself with people who know their particular subject matter experts in depth so that you can have them do a lot of the work with you and for you and being comfortable to surround yourself with those people who know a lot more than what you do on that particular topic.
0: Okay. So what is the most challenging problem that you've had to resolve then?
1: Well, there's probably a few if I think back, but there's a couple of examples of of companies I've been in where we've had joint ventures in embargoed countries like Iran, and you had to find a way in a sanctioned environment to exit those under the watch and with the approval, for example, of the US Department of Justice. They were particularly, you know, tricky, complex situations. You know, I've been exposed to compliance situations where you've been brought into a company to help instill a new culture after there's been breaches of FCPA regulations, they have proven to be particularly you know challenging. And then the other end of the scale, you know there's there's been in businesses that are going through financial hardship and have needed significant restructuring. you have to let people go quite often good people through no fault of their own. And you've got businesses going through, you know, quite traumatic declines that you need to make some tough decisions. So over me, 25 to 30 years in the industry, there's probably many examples that stand out as being challenging. I'm struggling to think of any one being more challenging than another at the time that the one you're dealing with is the most challenging. And then you go you go on from that and you actually realize how much you've learned from that experience. You maybe didn't enjoy it at the time, but it's only when you look back, you realize what else that you've learned and gained from that as an experience that you don't necessarily want to repeat, but stands you in good stead for the next job or the job after that. So there's probably a few examples that, like I said, the JVs and embargoed countries were some of them. Shutting down locations uh, when businesses were in distress was, was probably another tough one because of the people aspect. And trying to arrest the halt in a rapidly declining company that I joined you know, was also a very difficult one as well where you're, you're trying to deal with shareholders, banks, in a public company environment, and it, and the company's not on a sound financial footing. So they've all had different challenges with them, and they were all horrendously difficult at the time, but you learn a lot from each of them as well.
0: Okay. Do you think it's easier to sort a problem that's financially related or culturally related?
1: Oh, that's a good question, Michelle. It depends, I think. Um, it, it, it's too simplistic to say financial versus culture. You know, to change the culture of an organization or to fix a poor culture or an underperforming culture takes time. And you've got to try and identify where is that culture being driven from? you know is it endemic across the whole organization or is it only in certain parts of the organization is that the culture that's been led from the top and has been mirrored down or is the culture from the top appropriate but there's levels of management you know within the organization that is causing that culture to be put out the wrong way but quite often changing that culture can take some time typically when i've been involved in exercises like that you've got to make some tough decisions quite quickly, or, or maybe easy decisions quite quickly once you identify that where the root of the problem is, and you maybe have to let some of those people go who are not living the right culture or demonstrating the right values. But then you've got a longer term challenge to reset the culture or the values to the appropriate level, help people understand what they mean, and help people get on board to live and demonstrate those values that then create that culture. And I think once you get an organization on the right path, it's easier then to help people coalesce and align around that to continue that journey. And you might have some people from time to time who join the company that don't quite fit into that culture. And some realize that sooner than others, and often it's best for them to leave. But you keep on working in that culture, and it's something that's never really fixed per se. I think it's something that you have to consistently work on. If I flip it to this side to to the point you raised about the financial challenge, I guess it depends on what that financial challenge is. If it's, for example, that the business is underperforming and, you know, in its most basic term, you've got more cost than what you've got revenue, then you need to figure out what can I do to improve my top line? Is it the market that's the challenge right now? Is it a cycle we're going through? Have I got the right sales and BD team? Have I got the right value proposition? So you look at all those revenue driven indicators and optics to see what you can do to improve it. And then obviously you have to look at your cost base as well. And, you know, am I have I got a cost structure in place that reflects an environment we were in two, three or four years ago and I, need, and I haven't made the right decisions. They are relatively easy to fix. And then you've got things like, you know, has a company, for example, breached its covenants with a bank? In which case you need to get a bunch of stakeholders on board to give you time to you know fix whatever those issues are or is it more you know more fundamental in terms of balance sheet restructuring you know or anything so they in theory can be quicker to resolve but it depends how many stakeholders and the extent of the issue and obviously if I, you know, if you think in the last 5 to 10 years we've seen a number of companies go through various chapter 11 restructuring type events which has probably become more socially acceptable In the last five years than what it was 10 or 15 years ago, I would say it's always been relatively acceptable in the US. But here in the UK and in Europe in particular, I think it's always been frowned upon to a certain degree when a company has to go through some kind of liquidation exercise and come out the other side. But I certainly see the culture behind that changing. And so that's a lot of work to do it. But in many respects, there's a shorter window or time frame to go through the exercise than the cultural journey at a very high simplistic level.
0: Okay, excellent. So what keeps you motivated when times get tough?
1: What keeps me motivated when time gets tough?
0: All these decisions.
1: You, you, you want to jump out of bed every day, enjoying what you're doing. Hmm. And whether whether the times are tough or the times are good, if you're not jumping out of bed every morning feeling energetic and looking forward to the challenge ahead, then then your motivation is not at the right level. Okay. Or you're in the wrong job or you're in the wrong location or, or the wrong company. So when I think about when I've changed companies, it's typically because you start, you either lose a little bit of that motivation to jump out of bed every morning, you lose a bit of that fire in your belly to go the extra mile. So I think for me, I guess I've got a level of drive and determination that whatever I've committed to, you want to make it a success whether that's from a personal perspective in terms of you know wanting to be part of something that's successful and career development and seeing your career continue moving forward or whether it's because you want to deliver to the team that you're working with and get the organization into a stronger place it's probably changed and evolved somewhat as my career has evolved and my roles have evolved and if i think about where it is for you know for ProServe now. It's about helping pro-serve, you know, realize and deliver on our strategy and our potential. So yeah, it's 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 probably my inbuilt desire to be seen to be part of something successful and something that I'm enjoying. And in the times when I've been part of a business that's not been going through a successful time, I probably look at that as a stage of the journey that we're going on and how do we get out of that tough time, but back onto an upward trajectory again. So It's then just a case of this is just a passage in time and those good times will return if you get the right people working with you to turn the ship in the right direction again. So it doesn't last forever. You just have to get the right people on the boat with you to reposition yourself on the right journey.
0: Okay. So how would you go about repositioning yourself? Because it must have been quite hard, especially during COVID, because I think a lot of people were suffering.
1: Yeah, very much so. So I guess you've, you've touched on a couple of topics there, Michelle. You know, repositioning yourself, I guess, meaning a company and, and your strategy. And then you've touched on the COVID thing. So if I deal with the repositioning, you know, first, I think I think typically you've got to know where you're going. And w- one of the things I probably learned over the years through my various roles and organizations is, you know, what does success look like in the future? So you you, you get your team together together. And you discuss and brainstorm. You know, if you could fast forward five years, describe what success looks like. And and you pick up a few buzzwords. You get the team aligned on right. If we get to this, it could be revenue, it could be profitability, it could be it could be market domination, whatever it might be. But you get everybody aligned on that, that vision of success. And then you say, well, look here. So if this is where we are today, and this is success, what are the steps we need to go through to try and get on the journey? Do we have the right skills within the business? What do we need to change? What do we need to stop doing? What do we need to do more of? And then you start on that journey and you are constantly getting everybody aligned on that view of what success looks like. And as long as everybody's pulling in that same direction, you start getting a bit of momentum and then the organization gradually pivots. And that's something that I've done in, in, in a number of different organizations. And it's something that we're undergoing you know, now in ProServe. And if I come to the second part of your question around COVID, I think COVID in itself brought a particular set of challenges. Clearly, none of us knew how long it was going to last when we all went home in the early days and thought, oh, is it going to be a week, two weeks or four weeks working from home? And it was probably a bit of a novel experience for a lot of people. I think at different stages, we all hit that trough of despair when we realised this is not going to end quick and we all adapt to working remotely You know, and I recognize there's a huge difference there in terms of, you know, people maybe being at home with their families and the pros and cons of that. You know, if you had a garden and you had space, you could go outside and get some fresh air and what have you, great. But if you had young children who, whether they're school age or not school age, suddenly don't have their ability to go to school and be educated, It, it was a very intense environment. And then you had people living on their own who needed that level of social interaction that going into the workplace gave them and, and suddenly didn't have it. So I think, you know, every organization, everybody, we all went through different levels of stress and trauma through COVID. And it's certainly, I think, changed the dynamics of the working environment. But I think it's also changed the dynamics of what people now expect from a work-life balance. And I think it gave give everybody a bit of an insight into their character and personality that, maybe a lot of people weren't aware of before. And I think we're still facing the the outfall of that to a certain degree in terms of helping organizations be the best they can be. And it, it's certainly some conversations we're going through here at ProServe today in the various parts of the business is to, you know, we work now quite differently to what we did pre-COVID. And what are the good parts of that? And what are the less good parts of it that we need to constantly work on to find the right balance for where we are today in the environment that we are today? So so you're constantly adjusting that to make sure that you've got the right balance. But it's still a journey that I would say we're on, as I think most organizations are. And I know right now there's a lot of organizations saying, right, everybody back to work, you know, five days a week or whatever it might be. But that brings a different set of stresses and dynamics on people who... Perhaps don't want that so I do think there's a fundamental shift in the working environment in terms of what people expect how you get the best out of people and everybody's obviously different so I think the organizations need to be much more flexible now and on that topic than what we perhaps all were pre-COVID.
0: Okay do you think many companies will go back to having five days a week everybody in?
1: I think a lot of companies are already doing that yeah we see a lot of companies already doing it. I think there's probably more companies having some kind of balance whether that's you know 3 days in 4 days in whatever it might be and you know there's always been various models around that you know the 9 day fortnight for example. So there's certainly I think recently more companies moving towards trying to encourage people to come back and I'm and I'm personally in favor of having those people back who want to be back 5 days a week. But I don't feel overly strong about trying to force people to come back five days a week if it doesn't work for them. Because if you try and do that, and you've got a number of people who doesn't work for them, they will inevitably go somewhere else where they can get that flexibility. So there's potential. There's obviously a potential trade-off with productivity, and also with what I would call the glue in an organisation and that emotional bond or contract that you have by going into the office by having ad hoc, impromptu conversations with your colleagues and with your team members, you know, going for a cup of coffee and having a chat about what you got up to at the weekend and what have you. A lot of those anecdotal conversations are much harder whenever these working via Teams or Zoom and it's all remote. And I think it's even more pronounced for people early on in their careers or joining an organisation how do you feel that emotional attachment and tie-in and, and loyalty both ways between the employer and the employee, but both ways? How do you feel that if you're working remotely all the time? So there's got to be a balance, and I think every organization's got to find out what the right balance for itself is based on its culture, its values, and, and how people tend to work. and ProServe, we're very strong on the values, and uh, what we call our fresh behaviors. And I worried that during COVID, we started to undermine some of those because you weren't surrounded by your colleagues enough to be able to touch base, connect, and ensure that that level of trust and that social fabric was was as strong as it was before. So we've been taking steps to try and make sure that we get that back on track and get the right behaviors and therefore the right culture in place again. But every company is different depending on its values and how they feel they need to work themselves.
0: Okay. Excellent. So you're hugely successful, hugely successful CEO. Did you always think that you would be you would reach that level?
1: Well, first of all, Michelle, I um I I thank you for your compliment about being hugely successful. Um I would not define myself as hugely successful. I put pro- I worked very hard to get where I am and I've had a num- I've had a lot of people who've done a, a lot for me to help me get to where I am in terms of Coaching, developing, and and mentoring me, and I think everybody needs that level of you know coaching and development and and people to to bounce ideas off. So, you know, I I wouldn't describe myself as successful in that respect. Okay, I still think there's a lot I want to achieve. But to come back to your question, I guess did I always think I'd get here? I always knew I wanted the opportunity to become a CEO, but it probably wasn't until later in my career with the right coaching and mentoring that I realized it could happen. But I always knew I wanted the opportunity. I I always thought I wanted the opportunity to, to have my own business or run my own business where you're in control of your own destiny, but recognizing that you can only do it with a team. So over the years, I've always had that ambition, but you're never, I think, totally sure that it's going to happen, or at least I wasn't totally sure it was going to happen probably until, you know, the last five or so years when I realized, yeah, this is probably going to happen. But I don't see that as being a journey that's finished. You know, you're you're still learning every day. You've still got goals and ambitions and targets that you want to achieve. And it comes full circle to that, that point you asked me about earlier. It's about how do you feel either when your alarm goes off or before your alarm goes off, do you have that fire in your belly and that drive and enjoyment from what you're doing that you want to jump out of bed? You know, a lot of people have got that, and then they don't just stop when they get a the CEO or whatever the role is. Their target, you keep on going, and so I don't stand here now and think the journey's done. It's just that the journey and the journey continues in that respect, and you have to keep, if you want to, you have to keep pushing yourself. But I recognise that's not for everybody. Everybody gets to a certain level where they're they're comfortable at, and that's fine. It's recognising when you're at that level that I think is is important.
0: Okay, so what's the next step for you in your career then?
1: I don't know, as you understand, sir. You know, I'm really enjoying my role at ProServe. As I said, I've been here 13 years, so I feel I know the business very well. But we've got a very clear strategy right now with what we're trying to do and how we're trying to get there. And that's not easy. So the immediate step is for me to you know, help drive and lead the organization on that journey, keep making sure that I've got a team of people working with me, that is the right team to drive the business forward in that direction, and a big part of that is strategic alliances with other companies, where we potentially take, you know, an equity stake, or we have a, you know, some kind of partnership to get access to technologies both ways to drive the business forward. So, with that, there's a lot of time spent on building relationships, building trust, and getting to know businesses that might be much bigger or much smaller than what ProServe are building a relationship based on trust to allow it to go forward so that when you hit, hit the inevitable bump in the road, you can have a conversation and overcome that bump. And I enjoy that part of my role right now. I enjoy getting to know new people, building new strategic alliances and trying to take the business forward. And, and linked to that, I've taken on a couple of non-executive type roles, both linked within ProServe and investments we've got and partnerships we've got, but also Outside of ProServe. And that's allowed me to enjoy, you know, being part of a senior leadership team from a different perspective. So I'm used to being on the side, you know, within ProServe, certainly, and other companies I've worked at where you've got non-execs giving you constructive challenge and input and, and guidance and advice. And then these other companies I'm now on that side of the fence as well. So I've I've had enough time to reflect on what I think makes a good non-exec that it's allowed me to, to, to play out that side of my ambition at the moment as well. And I enjoy the variety that gives me. So at the moment, you know, I'm enjoying the variety. I'm enjoying the different exposures I've got. So I've kind of got no real desire to change any of that at the moment. But at some point, I will probably say, you know, guess what? Yeah, I want to do something else. And then I think it just comes down to what is that next opportunity? And it's less about the title of the organisation. It's more around... Whatever that opportunity is, is it interesting? Is it stimulating? How challenging is it? You know, what does that organisation need from a leadership perspective? Do I think I can fit? And I think as you're presented with different opportunities, you have to evaluate them, you know, within that lens. And if it ticks you off of the boxes, then you go for it. If it doesn't, you see you're not interested.
0: Okay, that's wise words. I just wondered, what is the because you were touching on before about mentors – is it important to have mentors during the whole of your career and what's the most important thing that they've taught you
1: I certainly feel it's important to have mentors throughout your whole of your career as well and I think you know we we're all still learning or we should still be learning and so I think anybody who thinks I've got to a level now that I'm not going to benefit from mentors is somebody who is kind of almost saying I'm almost closing my eyes to further development and further learning and if that's what they want to do, that's fine. But if you've got the ambition to be constantly improving and evolving as an individual, then I think we all benefit from mentors. And whether that's a formal label that you put on somebody or just somebody that you ring for advice and, and to use as a sounding board from time to time, I think they're both the same, but they're both equally critical. And so I still use a number of people in those roles now. And I think it's critically important throughout your whole career. Remind me, Michelle, the second part of your question.
0: I going to say, what was the most important thing that they've taught you?
1: That's a difficult one because I've had, I've learned different things from from different people, but probably there's probably an element of believing in yourself, and and that's maybe a reflection of the times where I've been, when there's maybe been elements of self doubt and you know, have I got the ability to get to whatever that next role might be, and then you've got your mentor helping you join the dots to show that you can do that. So there's probably been a few times where I've gone through experiences like that. So, yeah, it's probably about helping you be the best you can be. And, yeah, whether that's giving you the courage of your convictions to go after it or helping you realize that you know, we've all got strengths and weaknesses and don't think of everybody else as being, you know, infallible or superhuman so it's it's probably that ability to reflect and look upon yourself, and then have that awareness and therefore confidence to go after what you're trying to go after. That's probably what I think is the single biggest message I've had for, across from various mentors.
0: Okay, so how do you overcome maybe if you're having like doubts about yourself?
1: I mean, ultimately, you've got to push yourself into the uncomfortable zone. You know, it would be too easy to you know stay at home every day or not venture into that, you know, environment that you're nervous about or apprehensive about. You know, a few years ago, the thought of coming on something like this and, and and having this kind of conversation with you, Michelle, would have filled me with dread. I'm not saying I particularly enjoy these things any more than what I used to, but the more you do it, the easier they become. So for me personally, you know, that's probably part of it. So I, I probably have to push myself a little bit into my uncomfortable zone and, and think about, well, this is just a conversation between two people, and it's just sharing my experiences. And if those experiences are helpful for even one other person to hear and learn about, then it's been a good thing. So I think fundamentally, you've got to have the confidence to push yourself into your, into your uncomfortable zone, make yourself a little bit nervous so that you're almost a little bit on the edge. and And that certain amount of tension and anxiety, I think, is good for you. And a lot of people thrive in it. And i probably thrive in it to a certain degree. So it's recognizing where you are on that spectrum and and making yourself uncomfortable enough to keep that level of performance up. So I think, yeah, ultimately it's pushing yourself into your uncomfortable zone. But I recognize depending on how you're feeling inside, you might have good days and bad days where that's easier or harder.
0: Okay. If you were going to hire someone, what kind of values experience would you look for?
1: It depends on the role, first of all. Certainly from an experience point of view, it, dep- it depends on the role. I think the values is a bit more consistent. And I think I said in the call, you know, we have a set of values in ProServe, which we we use the FRESH acronym to describe. And they're really, for me, that they're, they're the behaviors that we expect people to demonstrate every day. So, and there's a couple of examples that we use to help people think about that. The, the first is, If you make a decision and that decision was on the front of the newspaper tomorrow, how would your friends and family think about the decision that you've made? Would they think that taking all the factors into consideration, that was the right decision? Whether that's, you know, especially if it's a tough decision that involves, you know, shutting a location, making somebody redundant for whatever reason, you know, anything to do with people or even if it's to do with winning work or whatever it is, if, if it survives the front of the newspaper test, it tends to be the right decision. And then the second one is, how do people behave when they think nobody's looking? And you know, you often hear the example of you know people walking past bits of litter and if the camera's on them, they'll pick it up, but if the camera's not on them, they won't pick it up. So we try and find people who live our values, which, as I said, are described by the FRESH acronym, because then you know that even when you hit the bumps in the road, they're generally people who are going to behave the right way. And that's a consistent, I think, no matter what level in the organization you're at, whether you are HR, engineering, finance, supply chain, whatever. And so that's more important, I would argue, in many respects, than the experience, because the experience is very much driven by what the role is you're looking to hire for. And obviously, whether that's a CFO, or a country manager, or a head of supply chain, you know, or an HR administrator, it's quite different. But the values and how you treat people, I think should be relatively consistent because that's the glue that holds an organization together.
0: Okay, that's excellent advice. So have you ever had any career disasters?
1: How would you define a career disaster before I say yes?
0: Well, I don't even know actually, it's a good question. Something that's maybe not gone to plan?
1: Yeah, I mean, yes. Um, And the reason I asked the question back to you is, you know, I, I had a role where I joined a company and it was not what I expected. And it became a dramatic survival stroke turnaround journey for a couple of years. And at the time, it was an absolute mess. Every day was a new challenge. Being in environments and problems that I had never envisaged being in. But when I came out of it, I realized how much I learned. And it was actually probably the role where I learned the most of all of my roles because of the adversary that I was exposed to. So whilst at the time it was a career disaster, I probably wouldn't be in the role I'm in now if I hadn't gone through that experience. So and it's made me reflect that when you look at people's CV. Having a bit of time where they've gone through a really tough time for whatever reason is actually quite a good thing because that's when you've got to dig deep and you, and you kind of find out what people are really made of. They get a set of experiences that if it's all just success all the time, you don't get the same exposure to. So it was a disaster when I was going through it. But when I look back on it, it was not a disaster. So I think your view of what a career disaster is can change over time. And like I said, to the point where if I was hiring somebody now, if their CV's been nothing but success, I'd be worried about when they face a tough time, do they have the tenacity and the and the stomach to ride through that tough time? And the earlier in your career you're exposed to that, I think the more adept you are at, at being able to handle it.
0: Okay. I can certainly relate to that because, mm-hmm. because I've had quite a few jobs in the past where you've gone in and it's not it's not the same as what you were sold at um interview level how do you even overcome that and even start to deal with that
1: are you asking from the perspective of the hiring person or from the perspective of being hired
0: being hired
1: yeah and so i think if you're being hired it, it ultimately comes down to the questions that you're asking and i mean it's always very difficult obviously because when you have been hired we tend to take at face value whatever we're being told by the, the hiring manager, the headhunter, the recruiter, whoever it might be. But I think you have to explore and you've got to ask the questions in terms of well, why are you hiring for this position? And and I guess depending on what position it is, you know, if you've been hired as a CEO versus you're know, somebody lower down the organisation earlier in a career, it can be quite different. But I think you have to understand about why they're hiring, why did the last person doing that job leave? What's the culture of the organization? What's the expectations? What does success look like from me in this role? And I think you've got to also understand the dynamics and the interaction between you and your immediate boss. Is that a dynamic that is going to like you to work well? Is it a dynamic where you feel you can learn enough something from that boss, but you can also challenge them at the same time? So there's a whole myriad of factors I think you have to take into consideration depending on what the role is and where it is, I think quite often what happens is when you're being interviewed, you're not necessarily told the full picture of what's needed in the role because people are trying to sell a role to you or sell an organization and they want you to be attracted to it. So you tend not to find out the bad news part of the role. So you have to ask the questions during an interview to try and flush that out. And if a a recruiter or a manager is honest, they should tell you what the tough parts of the role are because that will improve the likelihood of of a successful fit. And if they don't and that person's not up to the fight, you end up hiring the wrong person. And whether it's within three or six months, both you and the individual who was hired know it was the wrong choice. And it does nobody any favours, the individual or the hiring company.
0: Okay. So how do you go about asking that type of question so you know that you're pretty sure what you're coming into? When you're starting a new role,
1: well, you you can you ask it to the people who's hiring you. Okay, so whether you're going through a headhunter or a recruiter, you ask them. You ask the company itself, but then ask yourself: Well, do I know the people who work at that company? Do I know other people who've worked at that company recently and have left? What experience did they have? Why did they leave? And you you effectively try and do what an employer does an employee, and you take references on the employer. And by trying to contact people who've worked there in the past to get a feel for the culture of the organization, how do they treat success? Because it's all about getting the right fit. And I think it's less about the company. It's more about the managers that you work with. And if they are demonstrating the right values and the right behavior, then that increases the likelihood of success. But every job has got its challenges and its downsides. So the more you can find out that before you join the better prepared you are to make the decision in terms of, is this the right place for me? But there's no perfect answer, I don't think.
0: Okay. Is it quite difficult to, to, when you're interviewing someone, to know that you've got the right fit for the role?
1: It depends. I mean, you're never guaranteed for sure because you're always trying to sell the organisation and the role. And on the other side of the table, there's an individual. You're trying to sell yourself. And so both parties ultimately... If you can get past the point of selling and actually look at it as the point of view of I need to be as open and transparent as I can be, whether you're the employer or the employee, you know, if you're the employee potentially, this is what I'm really good at, this is what I like, but this is what I don't like and this is what I struggle like. And acknowledging that can make a big, big difference. So the more those questions and conversations you can have, the more you can lower the bar of risk on both sides but you never know for sure in reality because there's a certain amount of selling going on on both sides. But that's why you take references. That's why you're trying to ask the questions. And ultimately, you're trying to get to know each other so that you build up enough trust that you think, yeah, I trust what that person is saying. And I think they will behave the right way. And I like I like their personality. And you can do leadership profiles. You can do personality tests, all these kind of things, which I think help, but none of them particularly guarantee the outcome, but they all help, I think, build up a broader picture.
0: Okay. Excellent. So if you could go back in time to the beginning of your career, what piece of advice would you give yourself?
1: Probably in my early career, it would be around believing in myself. Don't be scared to take on new challenges. That's probably if I reflect back, because I probably became much more adept at that later in my career. You know, if I think of some examples. When I moved from being a CFO to a CO, or you know, as a CFO, I'd obviously come through a finance training. I had the qualifications, I had the experience. So you're certainly, you know, you surround yourself with really smart people, but it's your it's your technical domain, so you're in your comfortable zone. When I became CEO, you know, I remember I had a, a a very experienced engineering manager who reported to me. I, I couldn't tell him anything from a technical engineering perspective, but I rapidly realized it wasn't about being smarter than that guy from a technical perspective. It was about giving him and his team the right environment for them to be successful. So it's probably about being comfortable about exposing yourself to areas where you're not the strongest or the smartest person in the room, um, and it's then about flipping your skill set around to help them be as successful as they can be. And I think if I could have done that earlier in my career, I might have taken a slightly different path or made some moves earlier in my career. But as I say that, I don't regret the steps that I took and, and the journey that I took on to get here. But that's probably what your, your question makes me immediately reflect on.
0: OK, thank you. So maybe one final question. Do you have any advice to anybody, any young graduates looking to come into the energy sector?
1: I think one of the big challenges we've got with trying to attract people into the energy sector at the moment is when people think of oil and gas, they think of it as a a dirty business. And a lot of young graduates today are put off by that because they see the geopolitical rhetoric around it. You know, the energy space in its broader sense, including oil and gas, solar, wind and so on, I think is a fantastically dynamic place. I personally feel oil and gas is going to be here for the next 50 years as part of a balanced transition. And I think if you've got the right personality and profile, the experience you can get in terms of working in different cultures, different countries, crossing technical disciplines, solving complex problems, whether that's engineering, financial, or whatever, the opportunities you get are huge. And I think it's a great environment in that broader space. So... Don't look at the short-term geopolitical messaging around oil and gas equals bad. It's a fundamental part of the way the country, the, the world lives and works today, and we can't just turn it off. But as we make that balance transition into a more sustainable carbon-neutral environment, all those skills are going to be critically important, as, for example, we move into floating offshore wind and solve these huge engineering complexo- complex challenges to give us sustainable energy. So I think that's one of the biggest issues we have today in the broader energy environment. We're not seen as an exciting enough industry to be in. And I think, I think that view is fundamentally distorted by the current geopolitical view.
0: Okay, now that's amazing advice. So that's all the questions I have today. I would like to thank Davis for your time. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening and see you next week.
1: Thank you, Michelle.
0: That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, I'd like to gently encourage you to leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts and share the show with another person. You can also follow me on LinkedIn or via my website, www.michellefraserconsultancy.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.